What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. What's going on in pop culture right now? Really loaded podcast this week. A lot of great stuff to get into here. I'm going to react to the 2023 Emmy nominations. Of course, got to talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the banger that it is. Of course, the SAG acting strike. Got to get into that. And also some other reviews, Full Circle, new miniseries on HBO Max, or Max, sorry. (laughs) Uh, The return of What We Do in the Shadows for Season 5. New album from Disclosure, Alchemy. New album from Jay Huss, Beautiful and Brutal Yard. Been three years, long wait, very excited. And a new album from NCT Dream, ISTJ. So a lot of stuff to get into here. Make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. Get the pod anyway, Ken. Just make sure you get it. Hit the link below to do just that. Also hit the link below for the best of 2023 Spotify playlist for my favorite songs of the year updated weekly. And let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here reacting to the Actors on Strike. Yes, the Screen Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, is on strike in Hollywood, joining the Writers Guild of America, also on strike. Both the actors and the writers are on strike. The writers have been on strike since May. We talked about that when that happened. Actors just going on strike this weekend in mid-July after a 98% strike authorization. And this is very significant, obviously. This is the first time both the writers and the actors have been on strike at the same time since 1960, back when Ronald Reagan was the head of SAG. And it's the first acting strike in general in 43 years. Really significant. It's coming at a obviously very important time for this sort of thing. It's a major inflection point, I think, for the entertainment business, the film industry, etc., uh, and we'll get into all of that. You know, right off the bat, though, it's really hard not to look at the Directors Guild, which did cut a deal two weeks ago, and just give them a massive L because the directors couldn't wait two weeks. They had nothing to lose because guess what? The directors can't do any working without any actors or writers. Now, can they? They thought they could do work without writers with completed scripts, and perhaps that's true in some sense, but that's all gone now. With, with the actors. Everything is being shut down. We already have word of big productions, movies slated for 2024, such as Deadpool 3, Venom 3, Mission Possible, Dead Reckoning Part 2, Gladiator 2, the uh, Formula 1 movie with Brad Pitt. All these productions are, 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 are stopped. And there's a lot of, I think, implications for the industry that we'll get to. But of course, I think it's very important that this the strike is happening when it is just because the things that the labor and management are in clear disagreement on are very important. These are not things that should be just rushed to the side or punted down the road because the film industry is still recovering post-COVID and post the about-face that the industry in Wall Street has taken when it comes to the economics of the streaming industry and the streaming model. Despite all that, you know, people need to make a living that work in the business, and that includes the people that aren't at the very top, right? And I think some people who might not think about it for too long might be like, oh, the actors are going on strike, the actors are all rich and famous, what does it matter to them? We have to remember, the Screen Actors Guild 
has 160,000 people in it. That's actually 15 times larger than the Writers Guild, by the way. 160,000 people. Most of these are middle class, you know, working class actors. We're not talking about the stars. Obviously, the stars will be fine with their millions and their, their platforms. But thankfully, with the actors now on strike, you have these famous people with an audience, with a platform that can uh, help really spread the cause and uh, perhaps put more pressure on you know a uh, the AMPTA you know put more pressure on sorry AMPTP the you know the the, the theater uh, the studio you know union management group basically put put pressure on them to try and get some momentum going you know but much like when we talked about the writer's strike going going down in the beginning of May earlier this year with the Golden Globes you had the Bear season one winning for writing and. One of the guys who won for writing, won a Golden Globe, won recognition for doing his job well. Earlier that day, he had posted that he was going to the Golden Globes with an overdrafted bank account. Something is broken here. And it's clearly something is broken, even when you're doing your job well. Do I think we'll live in a world down the line where there's 160,000 working actors? No, probably not. It goes the same for writers. I think the overall number of jobs will go down. But for the people that are doing the job... Uh, things just need to improve. Part of that is just general minimum rate increases. I think they'll eventually agree to that. You know, uh, the the labor won't get as much as they want as a increase, but they'll get more than what's currently being offered. I think that's an easy one that eventually will be worked out with time, like it always is. Um, I think the big thing, though, the writers were taught. This is a big thing with the writers. It's a big thing with the actors. Um, resid- residuals as a part of the business, as a part of making money just has to be changed, has to be kind of updated for 2023 and beyond. And, you know, with streaming, there's kind of like a blanket residual that happens when your show is on the air and and remaining on a streaming service. But there is no success-based residual the way there used to be when stuff was, you know, in syndication and on cable and in in rotation like that. that. That doesn't exist. And... Uh, that's a that's a major sticking point. Also, I think one of the biggest headlines of all would be regarding artificial intelligence. Obviously, the writers are very against AI being used to rip off their existing work and also replace their future work. That 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 seems clear. It's a fair point to a fair stance to take, right? But actors also, you know, this kind of came up with uh, background actors getting paid for a day of work. Uh, and then having their background likeness like scanned and used by the studio in the future without actually being paid for those future use. I don't see why anyone would willingly sign up for having their future work not being available to them. Like, it doesn't make any sense why this, the studios think that's something people would take. Because if you, I mean, what is their point of view, the studios? Oh, well, you know, you can only do one day of work with background and scan it in. That means you can do more jobs, but you wouldn't get more jobs. The studios obviously would just eventually get enough background acting scanned in with AI and just keep recycling the same background actors. And we'd eventually probably notice it one day, right? And you would just kind of kill that as a job entirely, you would think. So I don't, I, I'm not sure when that's, when that as like a point of contention would come down, but that's something that needs to uh, needs to be resolved. Um, and in general, you know, guardrails on AI in the industry is a big talking point. 
And I think it's great that it's happening now. It would have had to happen eventually. And you're seeing stuff like lawsuits where I think Sarah Silverman was in one where like, hey, like you're using my work to train your program. And it's like the whole, there's a big plagiarism thing going on right now at AI because we the we don't have any rules. It's all so new, you know, so so much more to come on that both outside of the context of the strike. But um, we also have, you know, in the you know next year, the IATSE uh, union, the Teamsters union, their contracts are up. So all the crew on productions will be, I think, bring similar complaints to the table, just general rate increases, but also other more existential things. So, you know, I think this is something that has to get resolved because you can't have labor being left behind just because your industry is not as successful and humming as it has in the past. Um, and it's just incredibly poor optics for Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, to sign on for an additional two years and also give himself a $5 million raise in the process on top of his already like $20 million plus, you know, salary that he already has. And yeah, it was, the, is, was that Bob Iger's decision? Was it the board's decision? I don't, I don't care. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference because these companies are still turning over tons of revenue. And I think overall, like I said, like in terms of like the studio's, you know, thoughts about the business realities at the time, I think there will just be less jobs and less work overall in the future. But you need to take care of the people that will be fortunate enough to remain doing the jobs. Um, and I think that's that's just kind of where we're at. And, you know, like I said, we have all these major productions shut down. There's talk of independent films getting waivers to continue production obviously due to their small scale and you know lack of financing as it is they're not required for distribution the writing writers guild didn't do such a thing and i would advise that the sag not do that because you're just gonna actually hurt the strike overall and the studios would be incentivized to just fund and and, and acquire independent films at the very beginning of it and they would just kind of prolong the pressure that you would be putting on the studios with the lack of completed product to then sell, you know, at the box office on your streaming service, et cetera. So kind of hoping that doesn't happen. Um, obviously actors no longer are going to be promoting their films. You know, you had the Oppenheimer UK red carpet moved up an hour so that the cast could participate briefly before then leaving They canceled the red carpet for the New York premiere of Oppenheimer. Um, no stars will be at the Venice and Toronto film festivals, you know, coming up soon, which definitely hurts the buzz generation that movies that go to film festivals kind of need to get their uh, path toward distribution and, pro and hopeful profitability going. So that's not great. Of course, already, you know, the with the writers, writers strike, you have late night shows have all been uh, shuttered, obviously. So that's another promotion outlet that's long been gone for a few months now when it comes to selling movies um the emmys sh almost assuredly will be delayed out of september perhaps into november or even january um no actors will go to san diego comic-con coming up very soon um which i guess was kind of forecast with the, for the, the sake that like most um most big studios are not going to comic-con i guess they kind of saw the writing on the wall there uh, but nonetheless, like, there's just not <laughs> a lot uh, that can happen right now. The industry is basically ground to a halt. And, I, you know, there'll be there's productions over in the UK 
you know, um, and, and of course international, and, and thus there'll be tons of international movies still at the film festivals because they obviously operate under different rules with different unions and, and whatnot, if they even have unions, depending on where, where the movie's made. So uh, the film festivals won't be completely bone dry, thankfully. But yeah, uh, I think we're in it for the long haul here, at least through this summer, sometime in the fall, I think, is when people think this could potentially be resolved. But it's not going to be soon. And again, major L for the directors, because you can't do shit now anyway. Um, really stupid of them to kind of scab over um, in the way they did. And I guess, you know, looking looking ahead, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the 2024 movie space where, I mean, I believe Captain America, Brave New World, which is dated for July, that's actually completed filming. No other Marvel Cinematic Universe movie for next year and beyond has completed filming. That would be an issue for sure. Um, Dead Reckoning, like there's just a lot of, like the thought of a barren movie calendar a few years post-COVID, it's a disaster for the industry, but I think that's the kind of pressure you have to put on management to make lasting change when it comes, when, when you know, it's in the point of view of labor. So uh, we'll be paying attention and rooting for a swift resolution, but it's going to be a while. But let me know, how are you feeling about the SAG strike in the wake of the Writers Guild strike? Uh, how long do you think it'll take before this gets resolved? Are you worried about the future? And for more updates on the labor disputes of Hollywood, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of NCT Dream's third album, ISTJ. This is NCT Dream's first release since their Candy EP from last December, which I liked quite a bit. And yeah, NCT Dream, of course, one of the subunits of SM Entertainment's massive K-pop group, NCT people know. And I'll be honest, I often struggle to discern one NCT subunit from the last. There's just so many members, so many releases regularly from this wide-ranging group. I've always found it a bit inaccessible. That being said, I think NCT 127 and NCT Dream have been the most engaging to me in terms of like being able to like grasp how the groups work i guess wavy as well but they don't make as much music but yeah nct dream i liked candy a lot i think they're just kind of a fun playful group have that more i guess like useful energy that was at least the initial pitch frontline headlined by mark lee one of the signature members of nct and yeah i think Probably no one would hold up NCT Dream. NCT Dream is like the highlight of NCT. I think NCT One Two Seven clearly has that belt, but NCT Dream I still think has made some pretty fun songs over the years, and it's been pretty consistent at that. And here with uh, you know the third album, ISTJ, I think there's some fun stuff here. Uh, right off the bat, you have the title track and ISTJ. And when like that beat drops, I think it's really fun, very catchy vocal harmony, the uh, like dangerous vocal line from Jano and Heishan. I think that's like really engaging. I like I love the singing on that, but uh, the rap I think is just okay on that song. Track two though, you have the lead single "Broken Melodies," which has been a bit of a hit so far for the group. Very sticky hook, also very aptly named, you know, for the the melody of it all. Uh, big lead single. And I think kind of like like melancholic, kind of like fitting the like 
love struck like youthful vibe that like this group goes for i think that's like very much like in line with like what this group is trying to do in terms of songs uh track three you have yogurt shake which i thought had really catchy verses i thought this was really fun but thought the chorus was really weak kind of like killed the song for me uh track four i think this is my favorite song on the record skateboard I mean, the opening verse right into like the pre-chorus, the rap is just very, very hard. My only issue with it is the chorus is quite corny. What's it? The uh, on my skateboard, gotta, gotta get it rolling. Like, reminds me a lot of the hook on Two Baddies from NCT 127 last year. Just like, I feel like NCT and there's other writers at SM, like, they say some corny shit from time to time. It's it kind of just comes with the territory. Got of, uh, I think, just be okay with it i don't know uh but like i said i think the rapping is like great on the rest of the song so i think it's probably the best rapping on the whole album so i'll forgive the cheesy hook uh right after that you have blue wave which kind of like the production i think stands out like it's probably like the most like unique beat on the whole record um more or less it's pretty samey pretty uh, similar across the runtime a lot of up tempo consistent drum production you kind of understand what you're getting from nct at this point but blue wave like like there's like that whistle kind of persistent as it starts dropping in and kind of gives you that island like vibe which kind of fits the lyrics of the song so that one kind of like jumped out to me as something a little bit different uh poison i really like the harmony on the hook i think the second rap verse is really hard sos i think goes really hard as well uh pretzel i think it's funny to like use pretzel as like a or to describe the shape of a heart. I uh, salute the creativity there. And then it kind of like end, ends kind of softly for me, but the last song, like we just met, is just a straight-up like acoustic ballad, which I guess comes a little bit out of nowhere to me. Um, but yeah, I think overall, I think the highs of, of uh, Candy last year, the EP, I think that's a little bit higher to me in terms of my estimation. But... And I liked hot sauce from a few years ago. But yeah, I think this is still a solid, solid release. I just don't really know what I like want from NCT in any of the versions of NCT as a group. I, I just find it so unwieldy, personally. Like it's I know they just gave us the latest subunit NCT Doje Jung, which is just three members. I think it's kind of a great idea, but like I feel like the NCT branding almost like holds that kind of music back, like from a creative standpoint. I don't know. Um, you know, Lucas left NCT for many reasons, controversial at that, but like, I, I don't, wouldn't blame idols from trying to get out if they can. And like, there's a lot of buzz about like the contracts of this group and whether they're expiring or not. Obviously SM has been under a lot of fire lately with the ethical uh, gray areas of their contracts, looking no farther than everything that happened with EXO in the last few months. So I, I wonder like how long NCT is going to go or if it's going to be like a cycling out type thing. Like we just got the Young solo album. That was the first solo album from an NCT member. You know, you got a few of these guys in Super M. I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't really know what like the ceiling is with, with, with a group of this just unwieldy mass. I don't know. In, in a sense, it's very unique for music to like have a project like this, but it's also so obviously label driven that it's hard for me to get too invested in the creativity. So yeah, like I appreciate NCT when they do things that are pretty fun, you know, and I think in general, they always 
release pretty solid stuff, but I know, something about it just keeps me a little bit at arm's length. How are you feeling about NCT Dream's third album, ISTJ? How are you feeling about NCT in general? What do you want to see next from the group? And we know we'll get it in many ways, but how are you feeling about it? What do you want to see next? And for more music reviews, more K-pop reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Jay Huss's third album, Beautiful and Brutal Yard. Yes, Jay Huss is finally back. It's been three years since his last album, Big Conspiracy, came out in 2020, pre-pandemic at that. And obviously, I think anyone who's been in the know about Jay Huss has been a big fan of his for a few years at this point. You know, I think one of the more unique and singular artists in the British hip-hop scene, I've certainly been a fan for some time, I think what's always stood out about Jay Huss is really kind of like the whole story about him, but the music first and foremost has been kind of unique. He's largely credited with kind of developing a new subgenre with Afro swing, kind of a Afro beats meets grime meets dance hall type approach to British hip hop. Uh, you know it when you hear it type thing. And, you know, on top of that, like, you know, kind of having this like steady come up, releasing a really acclaimed debut album, Common Sense, back in 2017, a record I really love. Um, you know, and then going from that to kind of quickly um, finding himself beyond behind bars. And when he, uh, when we, we found out that he was no longer in jail, was because none other than Drizzy Drake himself brought him out in 2019 at his show at the O2 Arena in England, and. That, I think, it was like a triumphant, kind of iconic moment in like recent UK hip-hop history, you know? Um, and obviously, like it, it's an awesome shout-out or a co-sign from Drake, but even more so, just like it's a really, like, I think, really nice and warm gesture from someone as big as Drake, obviously, you know? And, you know, Big Conspiracy comes out a few months after that, and then JS kind of goes away. You know, at this point, he's a bit of a cult figure in the sense that he hasn't toured since 2017. He hasn't released music in almost three and a half years beyond a feature here and there. And I mean, just think about how much time that's been. Like Central C's entire career has happened in between J-Huss albums. And we know how big Central C is and how hot he is right now. Check out my review about his uh, uh, project he just dropped with Dave, which is hot, hot, and hot as hell and great. But yeah, like Jay Huss is finally back. You know, the last album got a Brit Award nomination for Album of the Year in 2021. Like, people care about Jay Huss. And now we got him back. And I hope we don't have to wait three more years again because he's just a really engaging artist. Like, the genre blend still really stands out. And personally, I think this is the kind of music Stormzy thought he was making on his last album last year, if we're going to keep it in the UK. You know, I thought Stormzy got a little, lost his way a little bit on that last record in terms of the sound. But Jay Huss is just so confident, kind of moving within this lane. And this is a lane that kind of moves within itself as well, right? And in a sense, this you know third album beautiful and brutal yard it's long 19 songs 63 minutes like we could have cut some of this down for sure but i think like that breath also gives you a lot of room to sh show you the different sides of jay huss which has kind of been apparent ever since that first album especially um but yeah i, I uh, definitely like this a lot there's a lot to revisit on this album 
and more than anything, I'm just happy Jay House is back. You know, I think we should really start with like the first single, Who Told You, featuring Drake. You know, that's a song where like obviously like Drake giving Jay House a feature, great gesture, love it. You know, Drake is loves to be that chameleon, right? We know this. This is kind of a like, you know, dance all like moving song. And I think in general, like there's a lot of like rhythms on this album from Jay Huss. I don't love the song with Drake personally. Like it's already taking off as any song with Drake would do, but I'm not the biggest fan of it. Like I think it it sounds fine and all, and like Drake can do a pretty good job like matching this kind of vibe, but it doesn't completely grab me. But it seems to be grabbing a lot of people. Um, I really like track two, Massacre. I think that one's just uh, really hard. I think uh, just kind of going through this track list here, one of the other singles, it's crazy. Uh, man, the the beat on that, super high tempo. I think that one goes really hard. I love the last song, Playing Chess. I love Come Gully Bun featuring Boss Belly. You know, lyrically, that's really interesting to kind of get like the Gambian like immigrant experience and immigrant like uh, point of view on like in- English life uh, thrown in there kind of similar to how like like Dave has recently like brought in like the views of his parents into his music I don't know I thought that was like like a nice like specific like type of message to get across in his song um, obviously we know in uh, J House's sound there's a bit of dance hall you have pop can on here on Killy I think that one actually goes really hard a harder song than I expected um, that was really fun I think Problem Fixer is probably like a quintessential, like, this is what an Afro Swing song sounds like from Jay Huss. I think that one's great, really hard. Uh, My Baby is a great example of another side of Jay Huss. That's a love jam. And, like, not only is it a love jam, but, like, Huss is, like, can be a bit corny, be a bit cringy, be a bit immature with his lyrics when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I think that's just part of the package. That's part of the appeal is that this is a guy who is himself. No matter what, you know. Um, Cream featuring CB also stands out because that is just a straight up UK drill joint. That shit is gloomy and ominous and menacing. You know the beat. And Jay Huss can go really hard when he wants to. Again, that's what's just so fun about him as an artist is that he can do all these different kinds of things. Um, Also, we have uh, Nice Body featuring Georgia Smith, a song that's long been. Uh, tease by Georgia and Jay Huss and his longtime producer J5 like really nice combo you know obviously we know Georgia makes almost every song she gets on better and we know there's another Georgia album coming out in a few months very excited about that big fan of her in general really nice you know I like that one a lot um, yeah I think like th- there's a lot that warrants a second listen on here to be honest and because it's all different kinds of music within this larger like afro swing you know grime umbrella i think he's just a really impressive and just interesting artist you know like, he's doing so much and i think that's what's so cool about uk hip-hop these days is that like the, everyone's at the top they're all like kind of different doing different stuff right like stormzy jay huss heady one central c dave skepta they all sound different from each other they're all doing different kinds of stuff you know, it's a very innovative place, right? In- innovative music scene. It's not just UK drill music. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. Um, Artie, shout out him, shout out H. Like there's a lot, uh, AJ Tracy. There's a lot of different sounds over there. And I think a lot of unique voices. And Jay Huss, I'm just happy he's back. 
that he's not like fading away to like you know his I think he has an un un I don't want to say unhealthy but like an uneasy relationship with fame and um, being a public figure it seems so hopefully he's able to manage that because I think we'd love to hear him stick around because when he does speak uh, we like to listen but let me know how did you feel about J House's third album Beautiful and Brutal Yard. Let me know what you thought about it. And for more hip-hop reviews, more music reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Disclosure's fourth album, Alchemy. A bit of a surprise drop. We had very little notice here, but of course, Guy Lawrence and Howard Lawrence, the UK EDM duo, is back with a new record. And their first independent release under their AWOL imprint, Apollo Records, since leaving Capitol Records, which is, of course, under the UMG umbrella. The Lawrence brothers seem very happy to be independent again as creatives. They you know, spoke to just the ability to be creative in their music in the future. They said they're not even going to go tour this new album, Alchemy, and just kind of do what they want to do. And I think that's obviously exciting and welcome whenever any artist feels that way about their work. Because obviously, a lot of people can't get to that point. Disclosure have been so successful for, you know, about 10 years at this point. I think they've earned the right to do it how they want to do it. And they have a fan base that's big enough to support them in that regard. So you can't help but be happy about that. Of course, this is their first album since their third album, Energy, came out in 2020. And that album got two Grammy noms in total. And I think Energy was a bit of a sign of things to come for what Disclosure wants to do in terms of their personal creativity, um, you know, in terms of what we got here on Alchemy. Alchemy is their first record that doesn't have any big samples and doesn't have any features at all. That's obviously a change from early Disclosure, the, you know, the most famous and popular Disclosure music on Settle and Caracal, their first two albums. Uh, the biggest song of all, people know it, Latch, featuring Sam Smith, a song I absolutely love. I had it in my top 10 songs of the 20. That being said, it does sound like Disclosure, and they've said this before, don't want to just keep doing the same thing all the time. And they are looking to branch out and try new things. And here on Alchemy, I think you are kind of getting that in the sense that it's not nearly as flashy or as like made-to-be-a-hit type music, but for Disclosure fans, I think there's still a lot of things to like. Overall, I did enjoy Alchemy. It's a bit of a short listen, 11 songs, 37 minutes. But you have some, I think, nice disclosure hallmarks on this record, which are fun. Starting right off the bat with track one, Looking for Love, that fast drum tempo, that sticky vocal melody, and just like those really like great chord progressions, that's just like a great classic disclosure song. You know, the vocals might give you like a slight shade, slight vibe of Sam Smith Unlatch, for example. Like it popped into my head when I heard it anyway. But I think that's just a, a great, a great, a great song right off the bat from them. I really enjoyed it. Um, track two simply won't do, but more of like a jungle house song with the looping uh, beat, the vocals again standing out a bit, really nice. And then track three, higher than ever before, drum and bass banger. Really like that one. Um, a little bit I thought was pretty cool as well. And, you know, then from there, the album kind of changes in terms of its vibe. You know, We Were In Love, the tempo kind of changes, goes down a 
bit. Feels like Disclosure just kind of mashing that beat pad to really pad out that production there. Um, this part of the album blends together a little bit for me. I think that's always prone to happen with a electronic music release when you have a lot of looping production, like the especially if you're kind of being in the same BPM range for a few songs in a row, like it can can sort of uh, loop you into a trance, even if it's not trance music, you know. Um, so I was feeling that a little bit. But, um, you know, I thought the last fo- song, Talk on the Phone, I was a really bouncy one. enjoyed the vocals there. Uh, Purify, I think, kind of stands out, like the, probably the biggest track, like in terms of big, big sound, biggest track on the second half there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's just, you know, it's, just, it's just another solid disclosure record. You know, I think with Energy and now Alchemy, I, I don't think the disclosure guys have, like, dropped any, like, monster, monster smash and they haven't really been trying to like i said that that that's okay you know but if you like really sit with like an album like energy there are really like dope you know bit of sequencing i don't know if like the sequencing nearly wowed me as much on alchemy but like i said i'm just happy that these guys feel creatively refreshed and are really looking forward to the future of their careers you know they're one of the few I think EDM acts of the last decade that's really sustained themselves in terms of maintaining a fan base, but maintaining relevancy and maintaining interest. You know, we heard that um, in a really cool way earlier this year with Skrillex coming back to the fore, for example, after a long career and some time away. And Disclosure, they might not be as like in demand and as hot as someone like Fred again at this very moment. But again, that's totally okay because they're clearly just ready to settle into this new, wide-ranging, taking risks uh, mode of operation. And that's really exciting, especially in the EDM space where, you know, you're kind of 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 two minds, right? Like this type of music, which is not going to be the most popular stuff that gets made, or the more, you know, for the radio, for the playlist stuff that's really safe and samey and you know who those artists are so the fact that disclosure has decidedly chosen the more artistic route i'm very happy to hear it so yeah let me know how did you feel about disclosure's fourth album alchemy how are you feeling with this both compared to energy but also compared to the early disclosure stuff that definitely feels like of a different time with them and for more EDM reviews, more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Full Circle, the new mini-series on Max, Max Original, from Steven Soderbergh. Yes, Steven Soderbergh once again giving us a TV series. This guy loves to work, doing everything he possibly can to stay busy. Of course, Soderbergh previously made three films in a row for HBO Max. Let Them All Talk, No Sudden Move, and Kimmy. And then he made Magic Mike 3, Magic Mike's Last Dance, originally for HBO Max, switched to a theatrical release earlier this year. And then, of course, Soderbergh's like, nope, I'm not done. I'm going to make a TV series again, full circle, six-episode miniseries for Max, previously HBO Max. This is his first TV series since Mosaic, which also came out on HBO proper a few years back. Uh, Mosaic was written by Ed Solomon, just like No Sudden Move, and now Full Circle. Again, written by Ed Solomon, the third union of Soderbergh and Ed as a writer-director combo. And, you know, on one thing, I would love it if Soderbergh just always made movies. Like, he is one of our great directors, has an amazing CV, but he also works so quickly 
that that makes him so exciting to me. I almost just wish he wouldn't like waste his time on TV. We get enough TV already. I'd like one of our great movie directors to keep making movies. That being said, because Soderbergh works as much as he does, I can't be on him too hard. You know, Alfonso Cuaron following up Roma with a TV series that still doesn't come out, by the way, that's a bit more disappointing than Soderbergh because I know Soderbergh will give us a movie soon. And heck, he gave us one already earlier this year. So again, I can't really get on him too much. But uh, yeah, full circle miniseries we have two episodes out of six six total you know and it's got a great cast it's Ozzy Beats, Jarrell Jerome, Claire Danes, Timothy Oliphant, Dennis Quaid, Jim Gaffigan got some names here and despite all that and despite Soderbergh's previous success with TV despite my reservations a show like The Nick has long been heralded as like you know the chief of technical filmmaking that can be achieved with TV especially when it came out you know a decade ago Despite all that, Full Circle did not really grab me. I think a big issue I have with Full Circle is that it's a bit overstuffed. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of unclear uh, plot mechanics. And you're getting exposition that doesn't really help you grasp what's going on in terms of the conflict, in terms of how the various plots and subplots piece together. And despite having great cast, despite looking great, Soderbergh, of course, knows his way behind the camera. Despite all that, I just really wasn't grabbed by the narrative enough. I'm not really sure if I'm going to continue with this one. You know, on its surface, you think it would be kind of interesting, right? You have I mean, the co- the core plot, and again, there are many, but the core plot is a, a kidnapping gone wrong, where um, this this crime group, uh, you know, led by Guyanese immigrants and other people in in New York City, they go to kidnap uh, a rich family's teenage son but they end up kidnapping the wrong kid completely completely wrong kid unrelated that's a pretty cool premise you know in terms of having things go wrong and ratcheting up tension and i like that idea but there's also just a lot more going on like you have the the this like crime crime syndicate group with all these guyanese immigrants new immigrants coming in and some of them are trying to get out and they're afraid of what's going on Jarrell jerome who's been in it for a while, seems incredibly desperate and um, ruthless in, in that regard. That side, you have stuff going on with the kid they were trying to kidnap, and he's, he's kind of like a wayward son to his rich parents, played by Danes and Oliphant, his grandfather, played by Dennis Quaid. Like, there's just a lot of parts here. And on top of that, of course, you have Zazie Beats, who's actually like a post postal inspector, who's kind of like, stumbled upon this case in progress, the case that hasn't even completely developed yet in terms of all these crimes that are happening and will continue to happen. And I don't know. I just, I don't know if like the circle as it were is like completed as a viewer. And like, it's, I'm not like that. I'm doubting that it'll eventually like all come together by episode six and it'll make sense as a multi-layered story. I just wasn't grabbed enough to necessarily want to, continue despite the fact that i think the cast is great i think the show looks great so yeah in terms of like that mystery noir vibe i mean it's always cool to be in present day new york love that looks awesome but yeah i'm not sure i'm gonna continue with this one but let me know how are you feeling about full circle were you more enwrapped and uh grabbed by the first two episodes do you want to finish the series convince me maybe i maybe i'll change my mind let me know in the comments 
And for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of What We Do in the Shadows Season 5. Yes, our favorite Staten Island vampires are back once again on FX and on FX on Hulu. First two episodes dropped of Season 5. And we know Season 6 is on the way as well because it was renewed for two seasons last year. What We Do in the Shadows, one of the most reliable and just one of the best you know, comedy series we have these days. And I was quite disappointed that Season 4 was overlooked by the Emmys just recently after the series previously getting some Emmy love from time to time. Um, despite all that, season five, two more episodes of the series that we love. And man, there's not a whole lot to say that hasn't been said before, but again, the show is just really, really funny. Like, I just love the central conceit and premise of what we do in the shadows as a series. Very simply, vampires in the real world, vampires that don't understand human society and things of that nature. It's just really funny. There's so much meat on this bone. It continues to entertain and delight. I think a big part of that is, of course, our, our core ensemble, these characters the, and these actors, these performances continue to shine. Everyone is just so finely tuned at this point. It's just a blast to be with everyone. And, you know, the, the show as a series continues to do really funny stuff such as like giving you more like vampire lore calling back to stuff in past seasons and just continuing to think of funny premises i think you know the end of season 40 to the beginning of season five um presents a bit of a, a, a big change in terms of plot it's not a show that's heavy on plot but guillermo being bitten by his friend Derek and becoming a vampire because uh nandor guillermo's master never would do it for him and make him a vampire, that's a big change, right? And now we quickly learn from uh, Laszlo that it's a big like insult and slight to have a familiar go behind his master's back and have someone else make him a vampire. And now Guillermo has to keep that a secret from Nandor and find a way to uh, perhaps trick Nandor and think he did it and whatnot. Laszlo figuring this out in episode two. Like, that is... Um, I think a great like central conflict to have. Of course, Guillermo kind of has that audience avatar throughout the series to this point, but I'm, not, I'm just kind of really in on that. And then, you know, from there, I think there's a lot of just funny stuff we got through these first two episodes. Like the very quick moment of uh, them talking about hypnosis and Nandor going into a public basketball game and hypnotizing a whole crowd. Really funny thought. Um, Nandor having really like crazy descriptions for the different sounds and settings of a white noise machine I thought was really funny. Colin Robinson going back to the workforce and being a waiter, being in the service industry, great idea, love it. Of course, Colin Robinson, Mark Proch, like back to full size, of course. Baby Colin, though, was a great idea, you know, from last season, loved it. Um, you know, we got to see the, the Baron and the Sire in episode two, love the call back, that was fun. And just like kind of going... <laughs> out with uh, their neighbor, Sean, and then Laszlo being, you know, I think kind of hilarious friends and just the dynamic of these kind of like dim-witted Staten Island normal dudes contrast with spending time with Laszlo and Nandor, these centuries-old vampires who don't know what the hell they're talking about half the time. That was really fun. Then they kind of go on like a GTA spree with taking their friend's police car and everything going too far, getting arrested. Uh, that was kind of a blast. I love how that resolves too after they get arrested where uh, 
all the police officers get hypnotized by Nandor, and Nandor is just kind of commanding the cops to like guard him. Like I thought it was so funny watching Nandor w- with his standing outside or uh, peeking out of the hatch of like a you know armored police vehicle and having this escort. Like that like made me die. We know episode three is called Pride Night. I think that's ripe for a lot of humor as well with this series. Can't wait to see that. And yeah, I mean, not a whole lot more to say. Just really funny. Um, it continues to know exactly what it is, but also find like new plot ideas to keep the show going. You know, um, I like I like the guide as well as a character. It sounds like the guide's going to be a bigger part of the series and the ensemble. I think that's fun. I always enjoy her energy uh, with the group and with Nadja. So yeah, what we do in the shadows, two episodes down, another season in front of us uh, and another season uh, next year as well, we assume. Really exciting. Uh, shout out FX, shout out Hulu, but let me know how are you feeling about what we do in the shadows season five. What are you most excited to see in season five that maybe you haven't seen thus far from the comedy series we all love? And for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. So welcome to Nostalgia. Dave here with my reaction to the 2023 Emmy nominations. We just got all the noms out today and got to get into that. Gave my predictions a few weeks back, and for the most part, I would say it was not anything too surprising definitely some interesting things to note but before we go into that you know i think the most noteworthy thing about the 2023 emmy nominations is that the emmys probably aren't going to happen on september 18th due to the writer's strike it sounds like if uh, sag strikes as well if the actors strike as well it's a absolute definite that this will get pushed for what we understand the television academy wants the emmys to happen in november instead if possible Whereas the network Fox wants them in January, which would be kind of interesting, you know, kind of in sync with the Globes and uh, Oscar season in general. That'd be kind of interesting, honestly. But I think more to come on that. But we have the noms out and we'll just get into those. Uh, Unsurprisingly, the leader this year, once again, HBO, 127 nominations, second place. No surprise. Once again, Netflix, 103 And then rounding it out, you have Apple with 46, Hulu with 42, Amazon with 42, and Disney with 40. In terms of the most nominated shows, HBO dominating actually 58% of their 127 nominations was their top three shows, these three juggernauts, Succession with 27, The Last of Us with 24, and The White Lotus with 23. Uh, you know, comedy was led by Lasso, Ted Lasso at 21, Marvel's Miss Maisel at 14, limited series, you had Beef and Dahmer with 13. Uh, you know, with that, HBO having a big year once again, but getting Succession, The Last of Us, House of the Dragon, and The White Lotus all nominated in Best Drama Series. No network has ever had four series nominated for Best Drama in the same year since NBC back in 1992. Definitely a big flex on the part of HBO to just have hit after hit, both in terms of popular appeal and critical adulation. Uh, I've talked about all those shows, of course, talked about most of these shows on the show. Um, HBO had a banner, you know, last Emmy year. That's obvious, you know. But yeah, let's just kind of get into everything overall. So we'll start with drama, start with the big dog here. So drama. Nominated, we have Succession, White Lotus, Last of Us, House of the Dragon for HBO, Better Call Saul, the 
second half of season six, the final season, AMC, The Crown on Netflix, and Yellow Jackets on Showtime, and Andor on Disney+. Plus. Very happy to see House of the Dragon and Andor get in there. I wasn't sure exactly if House of the Dragon was going to kind of get left behind overall. Uh, love that, and especially love love the Andor love here. Yellow Jacket Season 2 is probably like the least inspiring one here, just because that's a show that had a fall off in Season 2 in terms of kind of everyone's opinion on the series. That meant no Yellowstone, no Mandalorian, no Boys, no Rings of Power. Amazon's definitely disappointed about that. No 1923. My pick here would have been Industry on HBO, but of course, with all the big blockbusters from HBO, they can't also have their smaller uh, critical hits get in there too. So overall, can't really be too critical of that. Best Drama Actress, we have Sarah Snook with Succession, Melanie Linsky, or The Yellow Jackets, Bella Ramsey, Last of Us, Elizabeth Moss for The Handmaid's Tale, and Carrie Russell for The Diplomat. I think kind of the, the boring one in there is Elizabeth Moss. Everyone's kind of off the Handmaid's Tale you know, wave at this point, you know, not nominated for series this time around. Um, you know, Emma D'Arcy with House of the Dragon was here. Melda Staunton for The Crown was here. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of, a, kind of a weird pick. Although I forgot, of course, the one big surprise in this category, which is Sharon Hogan for Bad Sisters on Apple. Did not see that one coming. Uh, but yeah, overall, pretty solid. Drama actor, Jeremy Strong, Succession, Kieran Culkin, Brian Cox, Succession, Bob Odenkirk, Saul, Pedro Pascal, Last of Us, and Jeff Bridges, The Old Man. Pretty solid, pretty chalk. I would have loved to see Diego Luna get in here for Andor, or even Anthony Starr for The Boys, but pretty good. Uh, drama supporting actor, you have Matthew McFadden, Nicholas Braun, Alan Ruck, and Alexander Skarsgård for Succession. Really nice to see Alan Ruck get in there because it was the best Connor Roy season. Love that. Uh, F. Murray Abraham, Michael Imperioli, Theo James, Will Sharp rounded out for the White Lotus. So this was just dominated. This is just Succession White Lotus, this category. You know, one of the big things going into the Emmys, which I talked about when I did my nomination predictions, is that the way they changed voting where it was a set amount of nominees versus previously it was a vote for as many people as you think are deserving type prompt, this would get more shows nominated and prevent big cast dominations. But alas, we still got that with HBO, you know, fucking running shit up with all their significant actors with White Lotus and Succession. Um, I don't know. I guess it is what it is. But I would have liked a little bit of diversity in, in the category, especially F. Murray Abraham uh, under some fire for his personal uh, antics lately. Don't know if we necessarily need that one there. Um Will Sharp on White Lotus as well probably doesn't stack up to me with like Theo James or Imperioli. You know, Matt Smith, House of the Dragons right there, you know. Uh, but I mean, overall, pretty solid. Happy for Skarsgård as well with Succession. Just a great performance. Um, okay, that's drama. And you know what? Why don't we just get into guest actor for drama as well? Just because it's just so goddamn loaded this year. You have F. Marie Abraham and Nick Offerman. For The Last of Us, that one episode, so spectacular. And then you have Lamar Johnson and uh, Kevin Woodard as well for The Last of Us from a different episode. I did not expect that. I did not see that one coming. It just kind of speaks to uh, the the strength uh, of The Last of Us in this category here. You also have James Cromwell and Arian Moyed 
with Succession. I guess my one disappointment here with Last of Us getting four guest actor nominations, the other two going to Succession, I would have loved like Andy Serkis to get one of these for Andor. I love him as a uh, uh, Kilo. I believe it's the name. Ke- Kilo Kino. So good. Um, again, you would like to see the wealth spread at least a little bit, especially with a category like as small as guest actor. Uh, yeah, then guest actress uh, you have for drama. You have uh, Hewitt Abbas and Cherry Jones from Succession, Harriet Walter from Succession, and then Melanie Linsky, Anna Torv, and Storm Reid for Last of Us. Literally the same exact thing. Guest actor, guest actress, just dominated by two shows. Can't really quibble with any of those picks, but I would like a little bit more diversity in the shows represented. Alas, that's drama. Going into comedy, comedy series, we have Ted Lasso, Abbott Elementary, The Bear, Season 1, not Season 2, which just came out, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Only Murders in the Building, Barry, Wednesday, and the surprise would be Jury Duty on Amazon Freebie. Uh, Pretty solid, pretty good. The one big snub to me is what we do in the shadows, not getting in after getting in before, and also, I guess, a bit of a surprise poker face on Peacock. Not getting through. Bit disappointing. Also, the Atlanta final season, Atlanta season four, did not make it in. Reservation Dog season two did not make it in. Uh, shrinking as well for Apple. Could have definitely been in the mix here. Did not get through. But uh, yeah, that's the comedy series. Now going to the comedy actress, I think this one's pretty chalk. Keita Brunson, Abbott, Rachel Brosnahan, Maisel, Jenna Ortega, Wednesday, and Natasha Leone. Poker Face. At least Pokerface gets recognized by the central performance from Natasha. That's something. Uh, that's great. Um, yeah. The fifth one, though, is Christina Applegate, Dead to Me, which is, I think, pretty solid. You know, I mean, I think, like, the, the, the last pick here was kind of thin. You know, Ella Fanning for the great Selena Gomez. Only Murders. I don't know. Christina Applegate, fine pick. Comedy Actor. Uh, love this category. You have Jeremy Allen White for The Bear. Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso. Bill Hader for... Barry, his last two, of course, have won this before. Martin Short for Only Murders. Jason Siegel for Shrinking. That means Steve Martin did not get nominated alongside Short this time around. Donald Glover not in for Atlanta. And none of the What We Do in the Shadows cast able to break through this time. Overall, pretty solid, pretty stacked, and that, that is going to Jeremy Allen White. We know that. And I'll be doing my full predictions. Once the Emmys are actually happening, we have that date. I'll do them around then. Comedy Sporting Actress, we have Janelle James and Cheryl Lee Ralph from Abbott. Juno Temple and Hannah Waddingham from Ted Lasso, Alex Borstein from Marvel's Mrs. Maisel, Jessica Williams from Shrinking, probably the big surprise here, then Ivy DeBerry, of course, for The Bear, which means Sarah Goldberg did not get through with Barry. Overall, pretty chalk, though. Comedy supporting actor, Tyler James Williams for Abbott, Henry Winkler and Anthony Kerrigan for Barry, Evan Most Backrat for The Bear. Really happy that he's in there, too. I was worried that maybe he would not make it in alongside his co-stars. Then Brett Goldstein and Phil Dunster for Lasso. Phil Dunster plays uh, Jamie Tart. You know, in the past, uh, Ted Lasso got like a ton of nominations, right? No Brendan Hunt this time around. No Nick Muhammad this time around, but still gets two nominations. No Harrison Ford for Shrinking. No Tony Shalhoub for Maisel. Uh, but overall, I, pr- pretty good once again. Um, yeah, that's comedy. And then limited series, which if you watch my predictions, you knew that I said this was 
a bit of a crapshoot. I think overall it's a weaker, it's a thinner year for limited series than it usually is in the you know our, our peak TV times that we've come accustomed to. So this was ripe for a lot of surprise, and I think we got it overall. Limited series nomination for, for series, you have Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, Beef, both Netflix, Daisy Jones and the Six for Amazon, Fleischman in Trouble for FX and Hulu, and the big surprise here, Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+. Plus. If you had told me before Obi-Wan came out that, you know, a year later, Obi-Wan would have gotten a limited series nomination, I would have been through the roof, through through the moon, uh, to the moon, through the roof. I was so excited. Now, if you, if you then followed it up with Obi-Wan got nominated and you actually wish it didn't happen, I would have been shocked. I found plenty of things to like about Obi-Wan, but it's not a show that's good enough to get a limited series nomination. That's a bit perplexing to me, especially because it didn't get recognized anywhere else. Um, th- that means that one of the, I think, by the favorite for that spot was Blackbird on Apple, which did not get a series nomination. Other stuff in the mix that didn't get through here, George and Tammy, The English on Amazon, Mrs. Davis, Swarm on Prime. Yeah, uh, kind of, but overall, like none of those are like true heavy hitters. I mean, people like Monster. I love Beef. That's my pick for all these categories here, but it's definitely a thinner limited series year. Limited Actress, we have... Jessica Chastain for George and Tammy, Riley Keough for Daisy Jones and the Six, Dominique Fishback for Swarm. Really happy to see that. She was definitely the most celebrated aspect of Swarm. Uh, Catherine Hahn for Tiny, Tiny Beautiful Things on Hulu. That was a surprise to me for sure. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan for Fleischman in Trouble. And then my pick, of course, Ali Wong for Beef. That means no Emily Blunt for The English, no Elizabeth Olsen for Love and Death, no Rachel Weiss for Dead Ringers. But overall, that's actually pretty, pretty good. Great, great crop of actresses. A limited actor, we have Evan Peters for Monster, Taryn Edgerton for Blackbird, Stephen Yeun for Beef, my pick, Michael Shannon for George and Tammy, uh, Daniel Radcliffe for Weird, the uh, Al Yankovic story, the, the Roku uh, Weird Al uh, series, and or a limited movie. And then uh, the surprise, I guess, here would be Kumail Nanjiani on Hulu for Welcome to Chippendales. Did not see that one coming. That one's a surprise. Uh, yeah, meaning no Jesse Eisenberg for Fleischman, probably the biggest surprise here. Uh, limited supporting actress, we have Nisi Nash for Monster, Claire Danes for Fleischman, Maria Bello for Beef, and what am I forgetting here? Oh, Camilla Marone for Daisy Jones and the Six, I think that one's a bit of a surprise. Juliet Lewis for Welcome to Chippendales, uh, pretty good one. And then also Merritt Weaver for Tiny Beautiful Things. So I think some surprises there for sure. I would have loved to see Ashley Park get through for beef over Maria Bello, personally. Uh, last didn't happen. Olivia Coleman did not get through for Great Expectations. Thought that might have been in the mix. Um, yeah. Don't really know who the favorite is with that category, to be honest. I guess Claire Danes. I'm not really sure. Um, limited supporting actor. You have Paul Walter Hauser for Blackbird. Richard Jenkins for Monster. Ray Liotta for Blackbird and a posthumous nomination. Nice to see. And then... I think the last ones, again, are a bit, bit of a surprise. Marie Bartlett for Welcome to Chippendales. Uh, Jesse Plemons for Love and Death. And then, actually, really happy about these. You have Joseph Lee and Young Mazzino for Beef. Both of them getting through. That's um, uh, uh, Ali Wong's husband. The actor played him. him and then uh, Stephen Young's brother, the actor, played him. Really nice to see both those get through. Donald Gleason doesn't get in for the patient but overall like i don't know i think that category was really all over the place so i'm not i can't can't complain but yeah that's limited um 
yeah. So I think overall, kind of like how it's been the last few years, the Emmys are lar- largely more or less doing a good job with nominating. I think our one quibble remains that we'd like the heavy hitters to probably get less total nominations so that other shows can get some and just get in that mix just for that recognition. That's kind of the ongoing nod here. I mean, the Emmys, of course, struggle to like have like a relevance, I think, in terms of people paying attention to them because the TV calendar is non-traditional. At this point, you know, the Emmys coming out in September right before the fall television season starts. That used to make sense when we were in a broadcast and cable TV world. And we still obviously are, but with streaming shows coming out whenever they want to. And really, most of the shows coming out into the spring to make the Emmy cutoff deadline, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world to have the Emmys come out in January and almost kind of kickstart our award season. I mean, the Golden Globes and the zombie version that they are becoming with the Hollywood Foreign Press no longer at the helm. We could just kill the Golden Globes and have the and because they recognize television too. We could just kill the Golden Globes and have the Emmys kick it off. Of course, that's one less movie night, but I don't know. Maybe killing the Globes is the SAG Awards gain. I don't know. But I think for the benefit of the Emmys, maybe being closer to the rest of awards season could be a benefit. I don't know. I, I'm kind of rooting for that to be the outcome just to see how it goes. You know, I don't. I think happening in November isn't that big a difference from uh, September. But we'll see. Definitely sounds like it's getting delayed off of mid uh, you know, September 18th with the current date. So we'll see. Once we actually have that date, I'll be doing a prediction in the lead up uh, to that when we're close to that date. But let me know, how did you feel about the 2023 Emmy nominations? Was there anything you really wanted to see that didn't happen? Anything that you're very happy you did see get nominated? And for more award predictions and TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yes, Mission Impossible 7 is here. Our cinema king, Tom Cruise, back to save the box office once again. And unsurprisingly, this movie is awesome. It's so damn good. I had an absolute blast, and it's just really great. I'm going to spoil everything, of course, but... Man, Mission Possible is just our best action franchise. That's just the facts. Really, ever since 2011, The Ghost Protocol, and especially the last three movies now, directed by Chris McQuarrie, Dead, uh, Rogue Nation, Fallout back in 2018, and now Dead Reckoning. It's been a long way between Fallout to now. We made it. And this series is just absolutely chugging on all cylinders. It's so awesome. Just the use of practical effects to make absolutely riveting, thrilling set pieces. You're just not getting this level of filmmaking anywhere else from the blockbuster franchise IP space. It's it's not even close. And I'm going to do a direct comparison to a long-running action franchise that released a movie earlier this summer that got its clock absolutely cleaned with a similar set piece done by Mission Impossible you know, later in the summer. Uh, hilarious thing about, honestly. But yeah, really great. You know, I would, th- I would say off the bat, it's probably not as tight as Mission Possible Fallout from 2018. That is probably, like, arguably the pinnacle of, like, action filmmaking. Like, that is a five out of five, like, adrenaline the entire time. Amazing. 
Dead Reckoning Part 1 is probably not to the Fallout level, but it's not that far behind. You know, much like Rogue Nation, it's it's close. I think that just speaks to what Cruz and McQuarrie are trying to do, and they are succeeding. They are wowing, they are entertaining, they are thrilling, and they are doing stuff no one else has the courage to do, the technical means to do, whatever it might be. Um, they continue to win. I'm really rooting for this film to have a strong box office. We're hoping the Top Gun Maverick success last year will provide a halo effect, of course, with Tom Cruise being in both movies. We will see. Interestingly, Dead Reckoning Part 1 released, technically released on Wednesday, but really released on Tuesday with showings all day and had even preview showings on Monday. Like Releasing earlier in the week for like a five-day weekend, if you will, as a means to maximize the use of IMAX screens and other premium format screens before Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer comes out, which has a locked-in three-day, uh, so sorry, three-week exclusive hold on those premium screens. So that's what explains the early launch, and honestly, smart. I think too, you know, Nolan is uh, a force. You can't you can't really beat him on something like that. He, he seemed to have his bases covered. So why not open Mission Impossible a little bit early to? give people more time to see it on the best screen possible. And I saw this in IMAX and it was absolutely worth it. Um, yeah. So let's, let's get into it. Let's just get into it. Obviously spoilers, you know, I think it's a franchise that it's not like there's like a whole lot of like plot points to spoil. In fact, I think it's really funny how mission impossible treats plot story itself is, Kind of yada yada at times, but it's done in such, I think, an economical and efficient way that it's like, you don't mind that the the who's and the what's sometimes are a little unclear. It doesn't matter because these movies just flow and move with such a rhythm, such a finesse, despite how big and large and grand they are, that I think that's okay. So it's not like these like, huge plot points to spoil, but of course there are things to spoil. So let's get into that. Yeah, I think um, right off the bat, let's just decide how we're to go here. Um, we have three, three like really prime set pieces here, kind of anchor Act One, Act Two, and Act Three in the film. The first big set piece is, and actually I'll back it up before we get into set pieces. I think what's really cool about the the, the antagonist, the villain of Dead Reckoning Part One is actually how hilariously prescient it is. You know, Dead Reckoning Part 1 was supposed to come out um, in the past. This is a movie that the budget ballooned because it had so many COVID starts and stops with its production that it took a while for this movie to come out. Here it is. And our villain is AI. Artificial intelligence is the bad guy. Certainly not a new villain when it comes to movies. Look no further than, of course, Terminator 2, most famously. But given the... AI year we have in 2023, and I think it's widely accepted that 20 the 2020s will be the decade of artificial intelligence and the growth and explosion of generative AI in our lives. It's pretty awesome that Mission Impossible, right at this moment, is giving you a movie about AI. I think it's done pretty intelligently. Uh, you know, not dissimilar to like a Skynet. Very much, uh, our villain here is the entity this time. It's just this incredibly smart AI that has the power to obviously infiltrate anything and everything digitally, but notably hasn't actually made its move on like what this AI wants to achieve 
since going rogue, if you will. And that'll be seemingly revealed in Dead Reckoning Part 2, which currently is dated for 2024. We'll see if that date holds, especially with the writer's strike and whatnot. But that's uh, that's our villain, and I think it's actually incredibly effective. Um, having Ethan and you know Luther and Benji, having the game have to out, try and attempt to outsmart you know, as Ben or as Luther puts it, play forty chess with an algorithm. You know, it thinks it knows what Ethan Hunt will do before Ethan Hunt does it. Like that's like that's compelling, and I think it's like really nicely tied to the fact that Ethan Hunt as a character is always someone who can make that impossible choice, but also really cares about the people close to him, right? And like that is that can be perceived as weakness, right? Think about uh, his estranged wife played by Michelle Monaghan in like the earlier movies that was wrapped up in Fallout. But that, I think, core conceit, like it's it's probably one of the core tenets of what Ethan Hunt is as a character, right? Um, the AI as a bad guy is actually kind of able to play off that because it can predict how Ethan will react when his the people close to him are in peril. To me, I found that compelling. Um, so yeah, we, let's get set up in these set pieces. And we, we, right before the first one, we have, I think, a really great introduction to uh, awesome callback. You have Henry Zerny back as Eugene Kittredge, now the head of the uh, CIA, I believe. Kittredge, of course, has not been in the Mission Impossible franchise since the very first movie back in 96. And uh, it's cool to see Kittredge back in, like, basically a new role. You don't actually have to know anything about Kittredge if you, you know, haven't seen the movie you don't remember. I actually don't really remember much about Kittredge uh, in the beginning, but it's cool to see him back. And I think there's some fun, it's a fun scene where you have uh, Kittredge as well as uh, Indira Varma and Charles Parnell, some other characters, all various government figures. You have them kind of explaining uh, what the entity is as a... Uh, as a villain, like what it can do. It's like a lot of exposition, but it's actually like fun exposition because you're not exactly sure what's going to happen. You expect something bad to happen. And like, I actually found it really um, engaging because I thought something bad would happen. And then it's revealed that no, it's actually Ethan in a classic Mission Impossible mask disguise as his way to, uh, you know, t- uh, neutralize everyone with like a gas bomb, not not killing them, but neutralize them. So we can talk to Kittredge face to face, you know, without any uh, tracing from the AI and whatnot. Of course, Carrie Elway's his uh, national intelligence director character is a big piece of that meeting as well. He gets gassed, and then from there, you know, it's kind of a race against the clock right away, where the, our MacGuffin is these two these two keys these um, keys that form into one another to make this like singular skeleton key if you will to unlock something with the entity it's not really clear what that's supposed to be in the beginning it doesn't seem like the characters know exactly what the key does um and it's kind of said that it's the source code i don't know i found like that one aspect a bit like confusing or like unnecessarily stressed upon where it's like we don't actually know what the key unlocks like i guess like because we have that prologue scene where we learn about the origins of the entity and we know that it's actually located at like the bottom of the Bering Sea in a uh, destroyed Russian submarine. We already know all that, but none of the characters seem to know 
that the key would be directly related to the entity. I don't know. That piece is a little confusing. Doesn't matter. Doesn't detract from the movie at all. Because we very quickly go to set piece one, which is in the Abu Dhabi airport. Apparently, this was filmed with hundreds of extras right before his airport opened. Just, a, I think, a huge flex from a quarry. There's a huge logistical accomplishment to, I think, have this really amazing uh, kind of chase scene. You know, you have uh, Shea Wiggum, uh, his character, and also his uh, com- his comrade, his compatriot, played by Greg Tarzan Davis. They are these two characters under Kittredge, kind of serving Kittredge, trying to take Hunt in, take him in on behalf of the U.S. government. And they are like, him, them and, the, and their subordinates are trying to chase Hunt down while Hunt is attempting to locate the key. And they're trying to find the key, find both pieces of the key, who has the key, who's who's trying to sell the key to, to somebody else, trying to f- figure out things via the key. It actually is a pretty effective MacGuffin trying to propelling the plot because no one actually knows what the audience knows about the key. And that I think the Abu Dhabi chase is really fun, and it's our introduction to a new character, uh, Grace, played by Haley Atwell, this kind of like thief, sleight-of-hand, burglar-type character who has been contracted, we find out, to you know get the key, and her and Ethan come into contact together. And that's our, that's our setup into, into Grace as a character. And, um, you know, Mission Impossible is so fun as a jet-setting franchise. I, I, you do, and they do it, actually, in the locations. It goes such a long way to actually shoot stuff in the cool places that you're purportedly visiting, you know. So f- quickly from the Abu Dhabi chase, which I think is legitimately thrilling, you have this whole other subplot to it where Bendy's trying to take out uh, and deactivate a nuke that's in baggage claim. Like, um, it, it's it's a really riveting piece. And very quickly, we go from Abu Dhabi to where everyone was flying to, and we go to uh, Rome. And in Rome is where we get, I think it's an all-timer. I think this is an all-time Mission Impossible sequence. We have a uh, chase scene, car chase scene, where Ethan and Grace are handcuffed to one another. And it's like, not it's like the dominant hands. So they basically take turns, but they are driving a car through the streets of Rome while handcuffed to one another. So it's like one-handed, cross, like, it, like, and again, a logistical flex to do this on the actual streets of Rome, Italy. And, like, you know, eventually they go into a little Fiat 500, whip the fuck out of that thing. It's awesome. This is a really extended sequence. But, I mean, th- I think that sequence alone is, like, worth the price of admission, worth the price of admission to see it a second time. I want to see the sequence again. Like, I think that was like spectacular stuff, and along you know you have uh, Shea Wiggum and crew chasing Ethan and Grace. You also have separately uh, an antagonist we don't really know yet. This kind of heavy character played by Cl- Palm Clementi. People, of course, would know Palm as Mantis from the Guardians of the Galaxy movies with Marvel. Uh, Palm seems to be having the time of her life as this like homicidal assassin character. Um, great stuff. We eventually learn, of course, that Palm is in the, in the uh, service of Gabriel. And Gabriel is, in fact, like our he, basically the human expression of the entity as a villain. He's someone working for the entity. The entity actually hides him, and he uh, hides him from the internet. Like, there's no, there's no digital trace of this guy anywhere in the world. And 
he's probably the weakest aspect of the movie. Gabriel just as a villain, as a manifestation of the entity who purportedly has a past with Ethan, like early, early past, like crossing Ethan. None of that's fleshed out enough to really make him have like weight as a villain. I think in general, like Mission Impossible is not a franchise that had like dynamite bad guys. You know, like the probably the best villain in the franchise is Philip Seymour Hoffman in Mission Impossible Three. You know, rest in peace. And as just as a heavy, you know, Henry Cavill was great in Fallout, but like it's a bit of a weak spot. And I actually kind of like that the real bad guy is actually artificial intelligence itself, because like I think that kind of bigger picture thing makes sense as something truly going head to head with someone like Ethan Hunt, someone like Tom Cruise, you know. Um, so Gabriel's kind of just like caught in between, where like he's like good enough to do what he has to do, played by Asa Morales, I should say. Um, but he is to me, he was um, a bit of a, a bit of a weak spot, um, you know, from Rome. We get probably like the one slower section in the movie where we're in Venice, you know, not far away in Venice, which again, just an amazing movie location, as people know. And, um, you know, more, more, more things happen, especially with Gabriel. And uh, this is where we re-encounter um, Vanessa Kirby's character from Fallout, the, uh, you know, the arms dealer, broker type person. And, you know, a bunch of stuff happens. And I should have said, said before, Rebecca Ferguson has come back into the mix, reunited with Luther and uh, Benji and Ethan, uh, you know, her, uh, her character Ilsa is in the very beginning of the movie, presumed dead, not in fact dead. Rebecca Ferguson, one of our, I think, our great, like, action actors at this point. You know, you have her in the last, now, three mission movies. You have her in Dune, killing it on Silo, on Apple. Great actor. And this kind of all leads up to, I think, a really great example of, like, the AI fucking with you and the AI being a bad guy where, like, the AI gets what it wants and predicts what will happen. And it kind of leads to Ilsa and Gabriel having like a sword fight on a bridge in Venice, a bridge over one of the canals. And like, it's like a really fun build up as like uh, Ethan's trying to get there in time before bad things happen. But of course he can't because the AI is going to win and Ilsa is killed. Rebecca Ferguson is taken out. Uh, definitely a big hit for the, for the franchise for Ethan. But it's not lost to me that Haley Atwell conveniently has been added to the franchise. So, Rebecca Ferguson bells for her uh, great run on the franchise as Ilsa. Um, I think Ilsa goes out in like a pretty badass way, too. Um, and I should say too, like I really should stress, like Haley Atwell as Grace is freaking fantastic in this movie, start to finish. She's in a lot of it. Probably this, you could say she's the second lead. And you know, Haley Atwell is in her forties taken her a long time to get this role. People have obviously pegged her for stuff for a long time due to her, you know, small role in Marvel with as Agent Carter. And I think people have really rooted for Haley Atwell and wanted her to do something big. She got her chance and she absolutely crushed it, man. She aced this test. I'm so happy for her. Um, I think she's like really great as Grace. And like her and I think Cruz have great chemistry and a big piece of that is actually kind of like Physical acting, physical comedy, uh, gesturing and facial expressions. Like, it's not just all line readings, too. But she's also incredibly credible as, like, an action star, like, doing the stunts and things of that nature. So, um, even though it's it's tough to lose Rebecca Ferguson, given how great she is, the fact that we now have Haley Atwell in the franchise for this final run here, pretty exciting. Um, 
Yeah. And um and, and she's just kind of fun too, like having like being a burglar character has all this sleight of hand, picking pockets, getting the key from people and things like that. Just a lot of fun. Um and basically our our final set piece here, you know, in, in Act Three would be this extended uh train sequence. Not just any train, of course, but that would be the Orient Express going through Europe and uh obviously trains are not new to Mission Impossible. There's a nice call I think callback to Mission Impossible 1, where you have Gabriel and Ethan on top of the train having to like drop down low as the train goes through a tunnel. Uh, definitely familiar to Mission fans there. But this sequence is really awesome. Um, I think a lot of the classic Mission tropes, right? Taking people out, assuming identities, using the masks. Um, it, it, it's fun. And like, I think just in general, like a fast-paced train, a runaway train. Um, that's just a great like movie... Uh, piece and movie prop to do to propel action and like raise the stakes and you know in that you get like this really jaw-dropping scene where you have ethan drive a dirt bike off the top of a mountain to launch himself away from the cliff face so then he can then engage his parachute and use that to fly onto the train that he had missed and even if that's that action set piece is digitally enhanced in certain ways tom cruise still did a significant amount of that stunt and just kind of speaks to how much of a madman he is for the sake of cinema for the sake of our entertainment like the guy is what is it 60 40 50 50 that he will die on set one day because again he's in his 60s already obviously i'm not rooting for that but man the guy goes for it and the way actually that like comes through, where he crashes through the window with the shoe at the perfect time, amazing stuff. Um, and then of course the sequence kind of ends with like a pseudo like uncharted nod, where the train's like uh, falling off a blasted bridge, and it's all vertical, and Grace and Ethan have to get through and whatnot. Um, that that I think all the action is like just so riveting. You know, like I said, I think my one negative would just be Gabriel as a presence in and of himself is a bit weak he'll, he'll be in uh directing part two of course but didn't didn't, didn't love him but i do kind of like ai as an overarching bad guy when it's done well grace Lily atwell is an amazing addition palm clementif as well who now seemingly has become good by the end of this movie it brought into the imf it seems we know she will be in the next one that's been announced I would like to see more from her as a character. Like she clearly had, was good in the action moments, but it is a bit of like that silent Asian assassin trope that we get from time to time. Unfortunately, in, in the sense that um, Pom's character doesn't really speak a whole lot. So I'm hoping that the character gets a bit fleshed out as part of the ensemble in the next one. Cause I thought she definitely brought it with the action chops um, and Shay Wiggum, amazing hair guy looks great. Um, he's good in everything. He's in, and he's been killing it and supporting roles forever at this point. He's great. Looking forward to seeing more of him. Uh, yeah, man. I think just... It, 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 I was kind of in a daze walking out of the theater. I thought it was just an absolute blast. You know, and I think Dead Wrecking Part 1 is fun because it also brings back a lot of the series' uh, spy roots. You know, it's not a pure action franchise, even though it has amazing action in it. There's a lot of fun, like, traditional Mission Impossible stuff going on in this movie, which I think really rounds it out as an entry in the franchise. And just to speak to what I teased before, the Rome set piece, which again, to me, is the highlight of the movie, 
The Rome set piece is so tactical, so riveting, extended, but also really transportive because they actually did it in Rome and they're doing it in real cars and whatnot, right? It's absolutely hilarious that Fast X, Fast and Furious 10, did a Rome chase sequence with the cars two months ago. And it is so clearly inferior to what Mission Impossible did because Fast didn't actually go to Rome to make that. It's clearly digitally enhanced. It's clearly just drone shots telling you you're in Rome, even though you're not actually in Rome. Like, of course, Mission Impossible digitally enhances things too. But when you actually do it in the place, it goes so much further. And also you just have more advanced, more proficient, more skilled action choreographers with the Mission franchise. Like, it's kind of a night and day thing to me. And I even like that part of Fast X. I thought it was fun. But Mission just shows you just how much better you can do it. And to me, that's just kind of hilarious timing. And Fast X is uh, down bad with that, you know. Fast X grows $700 million. I think Mission Impossible would love to gross that much as well. So we'll see uh, who is laughing with the business angle at the end. Uh, Mission Impossible thought did pass that total as the highest grossing movie in the franchise. We're hoping Dead Reckoning can keep that momentum going. But uh, yeah, man, it's it's one of the best Mission Impossible movies, one of the best action movies you're going to get in any year. Like You really can't do much better than this. And yeah. Tom Cruise, he is our cinema king. Love him or hate him. Plenty of people love him. Plenty of people hate him. You can't not the fact that the man works and he delivers. So uh, I love Ted Reckoning Part 1. Let me know, though. How did you feel about Mission Impossible 7? How did you compare it to some of the recent entries? What was your favorite part about it? Uh, what are you most excited about to see in Ted Reckoning Part 2? And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for this week's pod. Next week, we made it, everyone. Barbenheimer is here to save our lives, to save the summer. Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan, and Barbie. You know it. I know it. Going to talk about both. Also, of course, New Jeans, second EP, hottest thing in K-pop. Got to do it. Uh, Greta Van Vliet's dropping a new album. I always enjoy making fun of them for sounding just like Led Zeppelin, so I'll probably end up doing that again. Spoiler alert. And yeah, make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. See the links below. Get the best of 2023 Spotify playlist for the best songs of the year. Let me know what's good, and I'll see you next week. Yeah.